All right, folks, good morning. Uh, the, I, as I see the clock, the, the time is fulfilled, and uh, Sunday school is at hand. So. Uh, so good morning. I, I think I've met many, most of you, uh, but I'm Alex Sherman. Uh, I've been around Trinity uh, a while. So I was baptized here in 2013. Um, yeah, it's, it's, we're, coming, we're coming close to my 10th uh, re-birthday. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited for that in May. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I've been in and out of New Haven for the past uh, many years. Uh, and now I'm sort of planted here for, for uh, the next several years at least. Um, I, uh, and this morning's topic, as we continue with the attributes of God, is God's love. I, I think um, on the This Week email that gets sent out, uh, I think it may have said God's faithfulness. I think the original prompt was like God's love, faithfulness, goodness. And I'm going to focus specifically on God's love. Because uh, this, this is a really vitally important and really beautiful topic. Uh, and you know, I feel actually a little bit sheepish now that I think about it to be leading uh, uh, a conversation now on God's love. Because I, I think like I'm a 30-year-old who's known the Lord for like you know, about 10 years uh, and I, as I think about it, maybe after you know, 50 years of following the Lord, then maybe someone can begin to say something befitting the love of God. That maybe after decades, we can really begin to plumb the, the depth of how high and wide and, and deep is, is the love of God. Um, and here I am, like a, a young guy who doesn't really know much of anything. Uh, so... Uh, that, that's going to be uh, sort of my apologetic at the beginning. This won't be any kind of comprehensive uh, treatment of God's love. There's going to be a lot that could be said that won't be said. Uh, but there's just going to be a few uh, reflections on uh, God's love and how, um, especially I'm going to be leaning a lot on this book uh, by Don Carson. Uh, last year, uh, Pastor Matt, or last year, last week, Pastor Matt mentioned uh, Don Carson's uh, commentary on the Gospel of John, said it was really, really good. Uh, and in fact, we have it in the room with us today. Um, but uh, this is also, this is a short little book uh, by, by Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. I mention it because I am leaning heavily on it and I don't want to, uh, I want to cite my sources. Uh, and you can also find the full text, of, you can find a PDF of it online uh, on the Gospel Coalition website. So if you just Google The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, you can, you can find it. Um, right, so uh, here is a roadmap for the morning. Um, first, the problem of divine love. So why might we call it difficult? Why, why might it actually be uh, challenging to say that, that God is love? Um, next, how do we know that God loves us? You know, knowing that actually, having established that it is actually sort of hard to say, it's, it's, uh, there are problems presented to us when we say that God is love. Uh, well, how do we know then that God loves us? Uh, next, what do we mean? Or rather, what does scripture mean uh, when it says that, that God is loving? Uh, and that I'm going to be leaning very heavily. I mean, that's straight out of this book that I found very helpful. Different ways that scripture talks about God's love. Um, and then finally, a, a bit of a reflection about why this matters, sort of application, right? Um, and first, is, is this visible enough? Actually, as I look at it, it doesn't look very bright. It's, okay, great. Um, first, and I don't think I have a slide for this one. I don't. Okay. First, uh, the problem of divine love. I think that if there's anything that most Americans today could probably agree on about God, 
whether they're Christian or not, uh, it's that God, if there is a God, is loving. Uh, you know, everyone, whether they're Christian or not, seems to agree that, oh, if there's a God, then, then he's probably a, a pretty nice guy uh, and, and loves us. Uh, and then he also wants us to love one another. Right? So I had, a, I had a conversation with my neighbor uh, recently where she was, telling, uh, she was telling us that she believes all of the religions. She believes all of them, uh, since they're all about love. Now, mutually exclusive religious claims can't actually all be true. Right? It, Jesus can't both be risen and not risen. Uh, but that, for, for my neighbor, that's actually that's beside the point, because for her, the whole point is that if there's a God, well, God is love, and so we have to love one another. That, that's the whole point for, for my neighbor. And, and, you know, to that extent, actually, uh, she, she really understands something very true about Christianity when she says that. Uh, and we, we can all sort of agree. Uh, we all sort of agree about this basic, very fundamental thing, actually, about Christianity, that, that God is love. Uh, but, but at the start of our treatment of God's love, I want us to see how non-obvious that is, that God should be loving. I want us to see how apart from God's self-disclosure to us, apart from scripture, apart from the incarnation, apart from any self-disclosure from God, it's not at all obvious that God is loving. You know, it, it, it's not at all obvious that the God or the gods, uh, you know, whatever sort of creative uh, power, uh, supernatural power there is out there, it's not at all obvious that this being or beings uh, should, should be loving, apart from God's self-disclosure to us. Uh, just judging by our observations of the world, our experiences of the world, it's not at all obvious. You know, sometimes the world is beautiful and comfortable and hospitable to us, uh, and sometimes the world is cruel and indifferent to us. You know, in the, in the very same part of nature can at one moment be beautiful and hospitable and comfortable, and at the very next moment, this very same thing is cruel and inhospitable. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we, yeah, I'm getting my days. It was, it was pretty rainy yesterday, right? Yeah. Um, rain's great if you're a farmer. Uh, I, I didn't really like it yesterday. I'm, I'm, sort, of, uh, I, I'm sort of bummed about it. And then uh, that, that's sort of a trite example. We get too much rain and it's a hurricane, right? Uh, uh, and this is not especially profound to make that observation, uh, that, that nature is sometimes kind and sometimes cruel. Uh, but if this is all we had, just our experience of the world, our observations of the world, uh, and we didn't have any self-disclosure from God, then, then we certainly wouldn't conclude that God is very loving at all. I, um, I read this, it, so, I, I read The Atlantic, and, and there's sometimes these uh, science uh, articles that are just about like cool things about animals. Uh, and there was one recently about spiders and how there's this phenomenon among spiders that like the male spiders sometimes uh, offer themselves up to their mating partner to be consumed, like eaten. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like sometimes the, the female partner doesn't even actually seem very interested, but the male partner forces itself on, on uh, its partner to be consumed. Like to observe that and say, ah, oh, the God who designed this obviously is very loving. It's like, no, nah, it doesn't make any, you know, the, nature is red in tooth and claw. Um, not to say anything of our own experience. Um, and so if all we had was the world and our observations of creation, our experiences of creation, then maybe we would be like uh, the old Epicureans, so the sort of Greek philosophical school. And they, they said that if there are gods, then, well, they're so distant, 
and so indifferent to humanity that they might as well not exist. Who, who cares? They, they, don't, they don't really care about humanity. They're indifferent to us. Uh, or maybe we'd be, we would be like the old like Greco-Roman pagans, where uh, you have all these gods, and they have all this family drama, and they are cruel and capricious, and one moment they're for you, and the next moment they're against you, and so we need to slavishly uh, appease their, their uh, short tempers. Because um, that, that's sort of how we experience the world a lot of times. Right? Uh, but we wouldn't conclude that the creator and governor of the universe is loving. And so, how do we know that God loves us? Right? If we're not going to get to the conclusion that God is love by looking at the world and looking at our own experiences, how, how do we conclude that God is love? Uh, and uh, there's a lot of ways that we know that God loves us. Right? And, you, know, you can open up almost at random uh, in Scripture and see examples of how God discloses himself to be love. Uh, but I find Romans 5 is part- particularly helpful for, for a few reasons. Um, this is... Uh, just a small point of interest. This is the first time in, in Paul's letter to the Romans that he says anything explicitly about God's love. You know, he, he talks, he says a fair bit about God's love throughout the letter, uh, but this is the first time he uses the word. Um, and, we're, and we're told, and Paul tells us that we can be confident that God loves us. Uh, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so because Jesus died for us, we can be confident of God's love for us. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying, right? We, and we might call this the, the objective side of how we can know that God loves us. Uh, it's external to ourselves. Because this thing happened in the first century, long before we were even born, we can know that God loves us. It doesn't depend on anything in me. It doesn't depend on my circumstances. It doesn't, doesn't depend on my feelings of, of whether God loves me. It is just this sort of objective thing that happened external to myself. And so looking at the, the fact that Christ died for us, I can say God loves me. Uh, but then there's also in this passage, actually the previous verse, so I put a little out of order here. Um, you know, what, what, we, what we might call the subjective side uh, of God's love for us. Uh, how, or, or rather the subjective side of how we know that God loves us. Uh, where Paul's saying, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's, who has been given to us. And so here, Paul is saying that through the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit who's been given to us as this gift that lives within us, God's love has been poured into our hearts. And, and through the Holy Spirit, we can have this internal testimony uh, in in our own souls, uh, the Holy Spirit testifying to us that God loves us, the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. Uh, We can have confidence um, that God loves us, not only through the historical fact of Christ having died for us, but but also through the ongoing subjective experience uh, of God's love for us, emotional experience, we might say, Uh, which, uh, you know, personally, I, I, I start just temperamentally I start to get uneasy when I start talking about emotional experiences because I just don't, I'm not very in tune with my own emotions. Um, <laughs> but God is, has given us, I, I think Paul is saying that God has given us at least these two ways uh, that, know, that we can know that God loves us, that this objective side uh, that the, and, the, and the subjective side, the Holy Spirit 
testifying to us. Another, another uh, verse is Romans 8.16. The Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are his children. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that as well. Um, and so, uh, both of these things being put together in Romans 5, uh, I think it might be helpful for us to ask ourselves, which side do, which way of knowing God's love do we maybe lean more into? Um, you know, which side is more significant for me as I think about God's love for me? Uh, am I someone who is confident in, you know, confident in Scripture's words and confident in uh, Christ's death on the cross for my sins, and therefore I can know God's love for me. But maybe I have a little difficulty feeling God's love personally. I might know God's love as this you know, objective fact, but I don't actually feel terribly loved by God. Or uh, am I someone who you know, affectively, emotionally, experiences God's love through the Holy Spirit in me, uh, but who has maybe a harder time knowing it objectively when I'm not feeling it? Right? When, when, I, when I'm not really uh, feeling myself to be loved by God, you know, do, I, do I have confidence, nevertheless, God loves me because I know that Christ died for me? Uh, and I think this text would call us to know the love of God more holistically. Right? I mean, per- personally, like I said, I, I, I want to be more open to uh, experiencing God's love sort of... Uh, Feeling God's love, knowing myself, you know, affectively, emotionally, ah, God loves me. Um, but I think, I think uh, th- this text might, uh, there might be a call in this text for us to consider um, for ourselves. How, how is it that I know the love of God? Um, right. Uh, but before I move on, so that, that was the, right, in the, in the roadmap. So we're, we're, we're here now. Um, so before I move on, um, any uh, questions or thoughts at this point. So you're speaking to Christians. This is about Christians because non-Christians might not believe the objective, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah. 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 I mean, def- definitionally, right? If if we if I am to say, "Oh, Christ died for my sins," uh, that that does make me a Christian. Yeah. No, that's a good uh, clarification. Yeah. Yeah, a guy dying on the cross doesn't mean anything to an unbeliever. Yeah. <laughs> Not a thing. Yeah, very very much so. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we can say, oh, God, God is loving. And uh, through the, the activity of the Son uh, dying, on, dying for our sins and, and the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, uh, pouring the love of God into our hearts, we can say, God loves us. But then what, what does scripture mean when it says that God is loving? That, that is, uh, yeah, what, what is the Bible, how does the Bible talk about God's love? Now, what are the different ways in which the Bible speaks about God's love? Uh, in, in this section, uh, like I said, I'm getting it right, right from, from D.A. Carson. I, I find it uh, helpfully clarifying. Um, having some categories to fit different texts of scripture into when it speaks of God's love. Um, So uh, what what are some ways that the Bible speaks of God's love? Uh, uh, Carson outlines uh, five of them, uh, five broad categories. 
uh, that I'm getting from you know, right out of his book. Uh, that uh, sometimes it talks, uh, scripture speaks of God's love, it, meaning this peculiar love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And we might see the, the Holy Spirit as well. The, the, the love of God within the, within the Trinity, between the persons of the Trinity. Uh, God's providential care and love over all that he has made for the entire universe, governing the whole universe. He called it good in the beginning and, and loves it. Uh, God, God's salvific stance, the way that God is committed to saving the world, um, his fallen world. Uh, God's particular, effective, selecting love towards his own people. So not just the love towards the world at large, but the particular way that God loves his own people. Uh, and then finally, sometimes scripture speaks uh, of God's love in a way that seems to be uh, towards his own people and conditioned on their obedience. And so we'll, we'll talk about these sequentially. Um, first, the, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, the, the love within the Trinity. So we see this in uh, pr particularly prominently in uh, John's Gospel. Um, so, for instance, the, Jesus is saying the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So the Father loves the Son, the love of God within the Trinity. Or uh, Jesus saying, uh, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Um, and, you know, much of, a lot of what we can say about how, uh, a lot of what we can say about God generally has to do with how God relates to creation. Uh, God, God is powerful, and God's power is demonstrated in creating and upholding the universe. Uh, God has wrath as a proper response to sin and injustice in the world. Uh, but in the beginning, apart from having created anything, God is love. You know, apart from exercising power in creation, apart from having any wrath because there's no sin in the beginning, in the beginning, God is love. Right? God, God exercised love, this particular love for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Uh, even before God exercises power in creation or exercises uh, wrath towards sin, uh, but before there was anything but God, God is love. Right? Love is, is just the, the deep bedrock of, of reality uh, that uh, we could say it predates God's wrath. It predates not God's power, but at least the exercise of God's power in creating the universe. Uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, How about sovereignty? Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sort of, I'm not making sort of broader sweeping claims about how, uh, you know, God's love is the most important attribute of God, but rather this more um, narrow, narrowly saying, uh, before we see wrath, there is love. Uh, before we see creation, even, there is love. Uh, if by sovereignty we mean God's uh, planning the end from the beginning, sure, yeah, that, that happens before the foundation of the world. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a good clarification. Okay, so sometimes when we see uh, Scripture speak of God's love, it's talking about this Peculiar kind of love within, within the Trinity. Um, then we could, we could talk of God's providential care and love over everything in the universe, over all that he has made. Uh, you know, think, for instance, of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So the application here that Jesus is saying is that we need to love everyone, not just our friends, not just our neighbors, but also uh, also those we might consider our enemies. Um, yeah, even, even your mother-in-law. Uh, and that application that Jesus is making depends, it's based on the way that God loves everyone. Right? The, the illustration is that God, God loves everyone indiscriminately because he sends sun and rain, these indispensable resources for, for an agrarian society. Uh, sun and rain are given to all indiscriminately, just and unjust, good and evil. Uh, because... And because God is indiscriminate in this care, uh, we are to love indiscriminately. Uh, so here we see uh, Jesus uh, speaking of God. God loves the, entire, the entirety of creation. And we see that in his providential care over everything that he's made. Uh, but then there is more particularly uh, God's... So I, I, maybe, I should, maybe I should pause uh, for, for questions before we yeah. move on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, do, does, that, does that make sense? Are there questions about that? Well, I've heard that um, God's essence is love, that he can't not love. Now, is that, go, is that equal to what you're saying? It's uh, like it's part of his, who he is? I don't know if that's right or wrong, but... <laughs> It's what I've heard. It's not something he does. It's who he is. Yeah. And I think especially as we think about that first way in which Scripture speaks, you know, first not, uh, first in the ordering that we have it here. Um, this, that first way uh, that Scripture speaks of God's love. The, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father and the Holy Spirit for the Son and the Father. The, the love of God within the Trinity. Uh, then we could say it's, it's in the essence of God to love because God uh, just being triune, God being Trinity, there is love there. Uh, and so God cannot but love um, because there is love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the question that raises is God is love, but what does he love? Uh, in, in terms of the fact that like, he loves the world Yet he does condemn to hell forever those who, apart from Christ. And so there has to be something. God loves everything. He must love something supremely. Um, and I guess, for me, I, I think it would say it's his glory. He mm -hmm. loves his own glory as the thing that's most supremely valuable in the world. Because uh, that, to me, like God does love, but he's, that doesn't mean he's going to... Um, because he loves his glory, that, that means he cannot overlook sin mm. uh, apart. And, but he does offer, for, he does extend and make available um, his son. So uh, I, I guess, I guess it goes to his own glory, I think. That's uh, why he can condemn people to hell yeah. forever. Because I think when you say to people, yeah, God is loving, but then you say, well, he's holy and righteous and he's wrathful, that makes people angry. And how can that be the case? And I, 
Anyway, just an observation. Yeah, and that's what I find actually helpful about uh, this sort of categorization of different ways that Scripture speaks of God's love. Because it can provide a little bit of rigor to what we mean when we say that God is loving. Um, and uh, you know, is it true that God loves the entire world indiscriminately, each and every individual? Well, to the extent that by God's love, uh, to the extent that the love that we're talking about is this providential love over all that he's made, yes. Uh, to the extent that we're talking about God's particular love for those in Christ, well, no. Uh, and so I, I think that um, this work that, again, I'm just totally just getting it straight out of. I, I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I think that, that can provide some rigor to uh, clarify what is it that we mean when we say that God loves. Yeah. Yes? Um, I... Notice in the class what seems to me to be two approaches uh, to answering questions like this. Um, Tyler, uh, I think, is an example of you know theological uh, argument. Um, I tend to be proof text uh, approach to to these questions, and I thought, hmm, neither uh, one. Uh, is is good without the other. Like I might say, hey Tyler, where do you find in the Bible? God loves his glory more than anything else. Uh, you know, boo, yes. But um, <laughs> there's no proof text for that. Um, but neither one, uh, you know, if I just proof text without using good theological, you know, analysis, I can end up in some really bad places too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I... Uh, you know, I look at myself and maybe Tyler, and I see two extremes, and, uh, but we need to work together. Uh, on, uh, Hopefully it's not devoid from Scripture, my friend. So I, yeah. I, I want theology is, the Bible is supreme. Is, right. is supreme in all theological arguments, the Bible must yeah. come first. Amen. Right, but if you just let people proof text, you know, uh, without using you know, logic, theology, other good things God's given us in the church, uh, we, we end up in bad places, too. Mm. Uh, Susan, I, I see that right. So, I'm sorry, I'm a little late, so maybe you already covered this, but it would appear that what, what God is telling us to do is to love the way that he loves. So, I, innately, I don't know. I don't know what love is. I have to find out. I have to learn from him mm. how to love, right? And God loves us, uh, inviting us, instructing us, um, prevailing with us, long-suffering, but ultimately, he allows us to have what we choose, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That, and that's part of love, is, is to honor that person's choices and you choose to reject them. So, I mean, I just see that as a part of it. You know, that he he loves, but we have to learn how to love like him. Yeah. Amen. I would say that uh, everything God has thought, said, and created is what God loves. And after the fall, even his judgment that comes on the wicked, he loves because he has to protect his holiness. Everything that comes from God, he loves Mm. because he is love. Because he made the world and everything was very good. He didn't hate it. 
Yeah. Everything he thought to create the world was good. It came from God. Yeah. And that's very much, you know, talking about, yeah, God's love over everything he's made because he made it and called it good. Um, And we might even say that, and this is, I think, it sounds like what you're doing, Raul. We might even say that God's anger against sin, against injustice, is an extension of God's care for, God's loving care for the good things he's made. Uh, Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, so different ways that scripture speaks of God's love. We talked about the love within the Trinity. Um, we've, uh, now we've talked about God's providential care and love over all that he's made. Um, but then more particularly, we could speak of, and scripture does speak of, um, God's salvific stance, God's posture of, of desiring to save uh, towards his fallen world. Uh, And and here, uh, the Gospel of John, and also the letters of John. So here, John could hardly be any clearer. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world such that he would save it. Um, Or in 1 John, uh, Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement, the propitiation uh, for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, and so we, here we see how God's love for the whole world resulted in God choosing to send his son to save us. Uh, he, he loves the entire world such that he would launch a mission to save humanity. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, especially the, the whole world, the, the world word whole there, um, gets it. This love is not just towards a particular subset of humanity, but God loves the entire, the the whole world in its fallenness, such that he would want to save the the world. That's not to say uh, that um, God will, in the end, necessarily end up saving everyone. And this is even what you were saying, Susan, right? Uh, But uh, God has this love toward the whole world, such that he would choose to send his son um, to die for our sin, to save the world. Um, any, any questions about that? I mean, this, this is John 3.16, right? This is... Uh, yeah, yeah, a very, very familiar text. Okay, so, uh, but then we could... This is, again, this is very general towards the whole world. But then we could also speak, in, in Scripture speaks, of God's particular love towards his own people. This, this particular, effective, selecting love towards his own people. Um, and uh, we, we see this first in the Old Testament. Uh, we see this in how God loves Israel. Uh, and there, there are these uh, texts, I, I think, uh, this Deuteronomy 7 text is just... Uh, astonishing in how it describes God's love. Uh, So here, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Israel had come out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're about to enter the land that God had promised uh, to give to Israel. And Moses uh, is telling the people, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Uh, And so we have this particularity, right? The Lord your God chose you out of all the peoples on the earth. right? This this particular selecting love. There is this uh, specialness uh, to the way that God loves Israel, his his people. Um, But then also, uh, it doesn't depend on any particular qualities about Israel. Right? It's not because you are more in number than any other people that God, the Lord set, set his love on you and chose you. You know, there isn't any, it's not that they're more in number. There's no particular qualities about them at all that caused God to set this particular kind of love on them and to choose them to be his people. But it, it, it's sort of circular, right? It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you up out of Egypt. It's like, why? You can't get any deeper than just God's decision, right? To, to set his love on them. Why does, why does God love his people, Israel? Just because he loves them. He just chooses, uh, he just chooses to love them. Um, and because they won't love him. Mm. And he chooses us because we won't choose him. Mm. And he predestines us. He has to because we won't come to him. We're enemies of him. Mm. And I love around that the context of like God saying, it's not because you're more wise or you're more righteous or you have more horses. Like everything that we kind of stack, like this would mean why God loves me. Like God is saying, none of those things. I love you because I love you. And yeah. he's telling them, like what we're tempted to think of why God loves me because I'm smarter than other people. Like, no, no, no. I love you because of my own decision to love you. And so he told that right from the beginning. Uh, yeah, and, and just so for us also. Yeah. For yeah. us yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, or uh, again, this is a theme that comes up a bunch in Deuteronomy. Uh, just a few chapters later. Uh, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Right? There, there's no quality about Israel. There's nothing about them that God should choose them, that would cause God to choose them. He just chose to set his love on them. And it differentiates them from the entire world. You above all peoples. Uh, right? God directs this particular kind of, of selecting, effective love uh, towards some people and not others, towards ancient Israel and not towards you know, pre-Christian Gentiles, right, toward all the other nations, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Canaanites. Uh, and as we see in the New Testament, this, this same kind of love is active towards those in Christ uh, whom God saves, right? I, I think I did end up making a, yeah, great. Um, right, so out of Ephesians, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, God's love. Uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So God's love apart from any good thing about us. We were dead in our trespasses. There's, there's nothing about us that God should set his love on us. But because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. Uh, and, and already at this point, 
we can see that this, that this way that the Bible speaks about God's love, this, this particular effective selecting love, uh, is rather different than the others that, that we've talked about so far. Um, God providentially loves and cares for the entire universe and each and every person indiscriminately. Uh, but there is a way in which God's love is directed towards some and not others uh, in, in this way, right? Uh, God made us alive together, together with Christ, uh, so those who are united with Christ, uh, i.e. Christians, um, experience this, kind, this particular kind of love from God. Uh, and, 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 yeah, we, any more questions about that? We've talked a little bit about it. But then, uh, then this final way, so now we're five ways, uh, if you've been counting. Uh, this, this final way in which Scripture speaks of God's love is more different still. Um, God's love is sometimes, you know, all of, all of that being said that we just said, uh, God's love is still sometimes said to be directed towards his own people in a provisional or conditional way, uh, in a way that's conditioned on obedience. And uh, saying this might give some of us a bit of the heebie-jeebies, right? Uh, but this is how Scripture sometimes speaks, and, and we want to do justice to Scripture. We want to... to, to Take scripture seriously. Uh, like, for instance, um, in Jude, uh, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Uh, or in, in John 15, as the Father loved me, Jesus, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so there's a way sometimes that Scripture speaks of God's love being directed in a provisional or conditional way, conditioned on our obedience. But we need to be careful to distinguish this from the other ways in which the Bible speaks of God's love. And this is what I'm talking about. When I was saying that having these categories can provide some some, uh, a bit of rigor behind how we talk about God's love. Um, you know, God's providential love and care for the entire world is not at all conditioned on, on obedience to God's commands, right? Jesus is explicit about that in Matthew. Is it Matthew 5 or Ma- end of Matthew 5, right? Um, where he say, it, it, sun and rain is sent on the evil and on the good, the just and the unjust, right? He's explicit, actually, that it's not at all conditioned on obedience, so that way in which the Bible speaks of God's love is, is indiscriminate, not conditioned at all. Um, or God's saving stance towards the whole world. Uh, that's not dependent on our obedience because our disobedience is what even made that love necessary. Right? The, the, uh, God's loving, saving stance towards the world such that he would send his son is, is predicated on there having been sin in the world in the first place. Right? That's not dependent on our obedience uh, because sin is what made it necessary. Uh, in God's effective, selecting, choosing love for his own people, that doesn't depend on our obedience uh, and, because that's, that's the point of that Deuteronomy text that we just read or that Ephesians text. Right? It doesn't depend on any particular quality about God's people. He just sets his love on them, uh, somewhat arbitrarily, we might say. Uh, 
But there is a way, you know, if, if Jude and if John 15 are going to make any sense at all, there is a way in which we keep ourselves in God's love and abide in God's love by keeping his commandments. We can, by our disobedience to God, fall under God's fatherly displeasure, we could say. Um, God's fatherly discipline. Um, there is, oh, Raul's going to love this. So the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, is this, yeah, yeah, I knew it. Uh, so it's this, the Westminster Confession of Faith is this sort of, this classic statement of so-called Reformed theology. Um, but, 1642 to 1647. Ah, yeah, I, I am, Raul is the expert on the Westminster Confession. I, I am not. Um, but there, there's, a, there's a passage from it that I find very helpful in this regard. Um, I think it puts it well. Oh, here we go. Um, it puts it well when it says that God's people may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance, right? Uh, I, I hope one day uh, to have a, a, a teenager. Um, I, I, we, we don't have kids, but I, I, hope, I hope one day to have a teenager. Um, and uh, if we have a rebellious teenager, then they, I would expect that they would fall under my fatherly displeasure at times. Uh, this, is, this is what we're getting at with uh, Jude 20 and 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, or John 15, if you, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Right? Um, we can, at times, fall under God's discipline and displeasure. Uh, he, he wants us, actually, to love him and to love neighbor. Um, and so if we're going to make any sense out of texts like Jude or like John 15, uh, or, or others, uh, actually, um, a, whole, a whole lot, uh, then, then we have to have this fifth category. We have to have a category for God's love being extended in a in a provisional or conditional way. Yeah, Susan. Do you think Alex, the verse in Jude could also mean that we don't feel or experience God's love unless we keep ourselves in the faith and in prayer? So, not necessarily, I don't read that verse necessarily that if I don't obey, you know, God could keep his love for me. But I read it, that, beloved, building yourselves up in the faith, building yourself in the praying in the spirit, keep yourself in God's love, meaning you're going to experience God's love as you keep yourself in relationship, in communication with him, in appreciating him, worshiping him. If I keep myself from worshiping him, if I, if I don't join with others to worship him, I'm, it's going to be a lot harder for me to feel God's love, right? So I think it also has that kind of like, God loves you, but you're not going to experience that love if you don't put yourself close to him, if you don't keep yourself with him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's, that's exactly how I, how I read it, actually. Yeah. Like, when, when we are living in uh, sin of which we've not yet repented, right, then uh, we should not be at all surprised that we do not experience God's love. If, if the... The, how, 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 does, how do they put it? The, uh, if the light of God's countenance, uh, the old-timey language, right? Um, right if, if God's love is obscured to us in our experiences, if we're, if we're not gathering for worship as, as actually God commands, uh, if, we're, if we're living 
in sin and we know it and we're not repenting of it. Well, we should not be at all surprised that we don't experience God's love uh, in this rich, full way uh, until we humble ourselves and confess our sins and beg pardon and, re- and, and renew our faith and repentance. Um, which is not to say that when, if we're not experiencing the love of God in some kind of experiential way, then we are necessarily living in sin and need to repent. And uh, you know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to draw that conclusion. But it's possible that maybe if we're not experiencing God's love, then there possibly might be maybe uh, things that we need to change. Yeah, th- thanks, Susan. That, that's, a, that's exactly what I was trying to communicate, and uh, thank you for actually communicating it. Yeah. So when you get to be my age, you know some wonderful people of God, you know? <laughs> and I remember an old Salvation Army brigadier saying, <laughs> this book, meaning the Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Mm. <laughs> and and um, I thought he was a little too black and white at the time, but I found it, his, his words to be very wise. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Uh, any, other, any other thoughts or questions? I, we're, we're nearing the end of our time and luckily also nearing the end of my notes. So uh, it's, it's nice when those two go together. Yeah. <laughs> Just to underline this, like a father, this God is a father to his people, and like Hebrews 10, a father loves his child so much that he disciplines them to prevent them from being foolish. He loves them too much to see them live in a pattern of sin and disobedience without confronting that person. And I actually think if you don't confront or discipline your child, the child actually, strangely enough, like my father doesn't really love me. Because he's not, he's not really checking me. He's not, he's not disciplining me when I need to be disciplined. I think God actually is the one who, who causes pain in our lives because he loves us. You know? mm-hmm. And that is, that's a good thing. And I think sometimes, like the light of his countenance, um, it could be discipline, right? Um, it could be because he's answering prayers. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know exactly why we're experiencing a dark season in our lives. Yeah. It could be that, or it could be other ideas. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I was know. a crackhead for 16 years. Mm. Yeah, it could be because, you know, Jesus experienced, he's a man of sorrows. Um, a lot of us Christians have experienced depression in their lives, and that caused them to rely on God more. Um, or it could be because they need to repent of their sins, and that there's yeah. an unconfessed sin in their hearts. But either way, God is still a father who loves his children. Um, that doesn't change even when you confess our sins. Like, I still love my rebellious teenage child, even though he has, I'm, he's, he's displeasing me in some way. I don't have teenagers, but I'm sure that's coming Yeah, sorry, I thought they were younger. I'm sure that's coming up the bike. When, <laughs> yeah. It was a saying by Martin Luther, which a lot of Christians, they, you know, they draw back when I say it. And, Luther said, sin boldly to other believers. And I tried to take that apart. And, and Christianity is a circle. You sin, you repent, you go to the throne of grace, he forgives you, you sin. <clears throat> so sin boldly, because you're coming to the throne of grace every day. Hmm. There isn't a day that you don't go to the throne of grace with your sins in your hand. Hmm. So Luther was right. Sin boldly. We have a God that loves us. 
and chastises us and grows us. You know? Mm. It's not just go out and sin and be right. bold about it. You right. Know? Yeah. Um, great. So, so, so uh, some con concluding thoughts. Um, okay. Uh, so here, here we are, this slide again. Um, different ways that scripture describes God's love. Uh, and I think that listing these out and thinking about them uh, in these sort of categories uh, can make some of our thinking about God's love a bit cleaner, a bit clearer. Uh, and we, we've done a bit of talking about that already. You know, for instance, is it true that God loves us unconditionally? Well, it depends on what exactly we mean when we ask that question. If we're talking about God's loving care for the world, absolutely, it's unconditional. Right? If we're talking about God's saving stance towards, his, towards the world or, or his particular love for his own people that he has chosen, then yes, it's unconditional. Uh, but if Jude 21 is going to make any sense when it says keep yourselves in the love of God, then there is a kind of, you know, the imperative, uh, the imperative verb there, keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, if that's going to mean anything, then there is a kind of conditionality there, right? So it can, it can give some, uh, this kind of thinking can give some, some clarity to how we think and talk about God's love. Or we can take a question that a, a Yale student asked me recently. Uh, does God love everyone, including non-Christians? Oops. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I got it. Uh, yes, absolutely. God loves everyone, Christian and non-Christian. Does that mean that God will save each and every individual in the world? Uh, no, because in that second question, we're talking particularly about God's selecting, effective, choosing, saving love for his own people, which is not extended indiscriminately, uh, the way that scripture talks about it. Um, right, so does that, does that make sense? It can, it can provide some rigor. Uh, really, the problem is when we take any of these five ways that Scripture talks about God's love and make it exclusive or absolutize it to the exclusion of the others. Right, by, um, for instance, we can run into trouble by saying something like, uh, God doesn't love non-Christians. Or uh, even further, we could say, God hates non-Christians. I hear talk like this sometimes. And it can be misleading because it makes exclusive this, this fourth way. Uh, it, it absolutizes and makes exclusive this one way of talking about God's love to the exclusion of all the others. Uh, or um, we can run into to trouble by reading the conditionality of, of Jude 21 or John 15. You know, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If we read that and absolutize it and, and, and think that God doesn't love us anymore if we sin, then we run into trouble, right? And then we're taking this last one, this last way that Scripture talks about God's love and making it exclusive, absolutizing it. Uh, we're, we're excluding uh, the, you know, the, these other ways. Then, then we run into trouble. Um, so when uh, Scripture talks about God being loving, it's, it's nuanced. Uh, there, there are complexities there. There are different ways that scripture talks about God's love and, and uh, uh, that, that can provide some, a, a little bit of rigor 